It is indeed such a blessing to be able to gather together as God's people. And thank you, Steve, for that beautiful prayer. If you happen to be joining us for the first time today, I'm Pastor Ann, and I am honored and blessed to serve this congregation alongside Pastor Andy. Know that we're glad you're here and that you're always welcome to be a part of what God is doing in and through this community of faith at the Way Woodstock, where we are committed to sharing in hope, living with purpose for the sake of others. Last week, Pastor Andy opened this series, The Jesus-Shaped Life, by reminding us that whether we know it or not, we are being shaped by forces that shape the way we think, what we value, and how we relate to people. He also reminded us that it's God's desire that we have a Jesus-shaped life and that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to see ourselves more clearly and supplies the power for us to choose to follow Jesus more fully. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can think like Jesus. We can relate to others like Jesus. We can forgive like Jesus. We can know the Father like Jesus. We can obey the Father like Jesus. As we navigate our lives We're all tempted to take shortcuts to get where we want to go. And oftentimes when we do this, we get lost, and it ends up taking us even longer to get to our destination than what we would have done if we just followed the directions. God's given us directions on how relationships work best, but many of us in our personal relationships think that we have a shortcut to happiness that doesn't involve sacrifice or forgiving. And instead of adhering to God's standards of integrity, we take a shortcut. We sin choosing our way rather than God's way. Jesus tells us in the greatest and longest sermon that he preached that God's ways work better. At the end of this message, Jesus tells us how we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit to live the life that God desires for us to live. So let's listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Hear the word of God. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear most gracious God, we ask, Lord, that you just open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to hear your word today. To help us live into what you have in store for us, Lord. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The greatest sermon Jesus ever preached the Sermon on the Mount. 
And if you think Jesus is just about love with no concern for how our actions affect others, go back and read that again because he takes the law and he says, you've heard it said, and he takes it to a whole nother level. For 2,000 years, philosophers have studied and they've discussed the principles that Jesus lays forth in this sermon on money, on loving our enemies, and on judging others. Leaders from St. Francis to Mahatma Gandhi to Martin Luther King were inspired by Jesus to adopt his strategy of nonviolence. Perhaps Jesus realized that many of us would be tempted to simply admire his words rather than act on him. So in Matthew 27, 24 to 27, he concluded his sermon with the parable of these two homeowners. In this parable, one homeowner takes a construction loan out to build his dream home. He budgeted enough to hire excavators to dig deep and lay a foundation on bedrock, even though nobody else would see that. But it was worth it when the torrential rains came and unleashed flood floodwaters that pummeled his house. No doubt he sighed a sigh of relief when he discovered that he had sustained only minor damage. In contrast, another, another man built his house around the same time. He had scraped together all the money that he could, could to construct a beautiful house. But instead of laying a foundation on bedrock, he saved money by skipping the excavator, and he built on level ground. But his dream house became a nightmare when the rains came. The floodwaters lifted his house and destroyed it. Jesus said that the homeowner who built on bedrock was like someone who hears his words and puts them into practice by following not only his words but his actions. When life gets hard, because it will, he will be able to endure. However, the man who built without a foundation is like someone who hears Jesus' words but does nothing about them. When the storms of life come, he won't be able to hold up. It's been said that the average American has about 3,000 Bible, is about, has, is about 3,000 Bible verses overweight. That is, we know more about what God says than we do what God says. Now, why might that be? Perhaps we assume that Jesus makes strong statements in order to get our attention, but that he doesn't really expect us to do it. Soren Kierkegaard said, most people really believe that the Christian commandments, for example, to love one, one's neighbor as oneself, are intentionally a little too severe, like setting the clock half an hour ahead to make sure that we won't be late in the morning. But by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, with this parable, Jesus was saying, don't just listen to this sermon, act on it. And Jesus practiced what he preached. He didn't worry about money. Even as his enemies executed him, he showed them love by praying for their forgiveness. 
His life demonstrated truth and grace. Jesus modeled a life of obedience to the Father. The Bible says that he was tempted in all ways, just like us, but he did not sin. Because he did not sin and have sin of his own, he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for us. A Jesus-shaped life is marked by obedience to God's will and God's ways. Obedience is the foundation of life that prevails the storms during this lifetime. Obedience keeps us from regret and it invites the power of God. However, it does not come just from mere rule following. In Jesus' day, the most religious The most dedicated religious rulers were the Pharisees, and they ordered their life around obeying every one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. And yet Jesus was not impressed with them. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law— you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus' hearers must have wondered, how can I be more religious than the Pharisees? I can't keep more laws than they do. But Jesus was not urging us to keep more laws than the Pharisees. Jesus wants us to pursue a holiness of heart rather than a mere external compliance. Rule-keeping is not God's aim, but transformation is his intent. I can't help but stop and think a little bit right here about John Wesley, the founder of the United Methodist Church. You know, Wesley said that that God's grace presents itself in three forms, provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Provenient grace is that God wooing us to us throughout our life, even before we're aware of him. And then justifying grace is when we say yes to that, to that love of God and that grace of God. It's when we ask Jesus to come into our life and be our Lord and our Savior. And then there's sanctifying grace. And sanctifying grace is that period of time that happens from the time we accept Jesus into our life to when we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. It's, sometimes it's referred to as the more, that God has more and more and more in store for us that we can't even imagine. <laughs> Legalism, though, can never make us holy. It deals only with the external behavior. It fails because it's like when you're attempting to weed your yard by clipping the top of the weeds off. Not only do those weeds resurface, but the roots keep spreading underground to sprout in another location. Now, we can attempt to modify our behavior, and sometimes we can be successful, and other times not so much so. But only the Holy Spirit can transform us inwardly so that we desire what God desires. The obedience of Jesus was not rule-keeping, it was a life that, tr- that sprang from a heart that was always open to the whisper of the Spirit 
and always responded with a yes, Lord. We won't be shaped deeply into the image of Jesus by a few more clever insights. We have to choose to cooperate with the transforming of God's spirit. We cooperate in many ways as we gather to worship, pray, study, and meditate on God's word together. We're called to renounce sin. Remember, Jesus started his ministry with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We renounce sin by an act of our will. We say, I am done with doing what I want instead of what God wants. And then we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us because as Galatians 5.16 tells us, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit makes us like Jesus by changing us inwardly so that we have the power to do what he calls us to do. The Spirit also points out where we need to change. The Holy Spirit acts like our internal GPS, which prompts us when we get off track to turn to repent. When we stray off Jesus' path, the Holy Spirit will, re- will prompt us to repent and will guide us back onto the way. 1 John 2, 1-2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. For if anyone does sin, he has, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Apostle Paul reminds us of the obedience of Jesus in Philippians 2.8. And being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul instructs us, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Jesus came to earth full of grace and truth. If we are truly following him, we must live a life that's obedient to both grace and truth. I've recently been rereading the book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Now, many of you probably know he was a, a, a man, a priest, uh, who lived, or a pastor, who lived in Germany in those years when Hitler was ri- rising to power. But even before Hitler came to power, Bonhoeffer understood that national socialism was a brutal attempt to make history without God and to be found on the strength of man alone. Bonhoeffer was actually taken prisoner by the Nazis because of his attempt to stand in the face of evil. I have a quote that he made. um, I have several quotes that he made that I'm going to share with you. Um, His first one that I think is important for all of us to think about, especially in the the day in which we live, is that um, 
And he felt very strongly about this, strongly enough to give his life for this. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So he acted and was taken prisoner by the Germans. He actually was was killed by them just several days before the war ended. And in his book, he makes the distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And then he makes the distinction what costly grace is. And he says, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man or woman must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. We follow Christ as we die to our own will and follow God's will. And we do this on a daily basis in order to rise to the life that God desires for us. Grace and truth are both needed in order for us to grow in the likeness of Jesus. Help us to embrace them both. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we be obedient to Christ and his teachings as we too die to our old self in order to rise to the new life in him. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Dear most gracious God, we do come to you, Lord, and we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to empower us to live the life you've called us to live. Not to embrace cheap grace, Lord, but to recognize that grace is costly. It is a turning from the ways of the world to your way. And Lord, sometimes when we do that, it comes at a cost. Others don't understand. Others may persecute. Others may call us names. But Lord... You know our hearts. As we follow Jesus, we're following not only truth, but we are also following grace, both. And as such, we welcome others to come to know that beautiful, sanctifying grace, 
the grace of the more. And it is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. And all God's children said, Amen.